I'm Daniel Rothberg, a reporter for the Nevada Independent. Before we start, I want to do a quick plug for the pod. If you've not done so already, please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Also, be sure to tell your friends, neighbors, and countrymen that the Indie Matters podcast is chock full of interesting information on topics that matter to them and they should be listening to. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. I'm joined by Brad Kroll, the head of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Kroll was appointed to the position in late 2016 by Governor Brian Sandoval. He came back to Carson City after serving in the Obama administration as Assistant Secretary in the Department of Energy. He also worked for the Natural Resources Defense Council and former Governor and Senator Richard Bryan. Governor Steve Sisolak announced that he planned to keep Kroll on as the head of the department. So before we get into the nitty gritty, I'm going to start off with sort of something open-ended. I'm wondering if, uh, Brad, you can just sort of tell us a little bit about what, as the director of DCNR, you do sort of on a daily basis. Thanks, Daniel. Happy to give you a little bit, bit of background on DCNR. Um, we're actually one of the larger cabinet agencies within Nevada, uh, but a little less well-known, at least from our department moniker. Um, people are more familiar with us as being um, the folks who run state parks and the Division of Forestry and house the state engineer um, uh, in the Office of State Lands, things like that. Um, but we are about a thousand person entity uh, with seven divisions, three programs, a variety of boards and commissions. Um, our annual budget's around 132 million, um, but only 37 million of which is general fund. Um, and I, I like to describe DCNR as we do everything you could think of in the environment and natural resource space other than uh, wildlife and agriculture, but there's exceptions to those as well, uh, such as uh, our management of the, of the sage-grouse habitat. Cool. So we're about one week into a new administration, and I'm wondering if you can just sort of walk us through and if you expect any sort of big policy changes under this administration or anything to sort of change in what the, what the department has been doing or pursuing or prioritizing. I think under the new administration will be um, staying the course on many of, of the things we've been doing in the past um, that Governor Sandoval set the stage for, uh, such as uh, the two new uh, state parks we established and other things along those lines, like forest management and what have you. I think areas where we're gonna, you're going to see changes will be in the water resources space, where we're going to be tackling some very big challenges with regard to our how we allocate our water, our limited water resources across Nevada, and that has uh, an element within the regulatory sphere of, of of the state engineer's office, the legislature, the courts, and the governor's office. So it'll be very interesting to see how that goes forward. I, I do also think on the forestry point, we do need to be more active in our forest management, not just on fire suppression, but lean in more on on mitigation and post fire rehab. And then I think you'll you'll see from this administration more leaning in on um, addressing climate and energy problems and and really helping establish Nevada as a leading state uh, within the nation, focusing on clean energy, um, focusing on reducing emissions. And the prior administration has set the stage very well uh, for Governor Sisolak to, to lean even further in that direction. 
Does that mean a hundred percent renewable portfolio standard? <laughs> I'll I'll leave that to the legislature, <laughs> but uh, in the near term, that would be pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about the water resources angle because I think many people, sort of, in Nevada probably rightfully perceive it as one of the most important issues. Nevada is one of the most arid states or is the most arid state in the country in an already arid region and in a region that is expected to only become more arid with warming temperatures and just changes in in the water cycle. So last week, state's sort of top water regulator, the state engineer, which is I know kind of an obscure title for people, uh, retired um, after decades of working for the department. I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through what his departure kind of means for the state and for some of the work you mentioned going ahead. So, so Jason King, our, our state engineer who's just retired was, was with the department for 28 years and, and, and 10 of those as state engineer. And, and Jason really laid the foundation for uh, many of the challenging water issues we have on our plate today that uh, will be carried forward under uh, the next state engineer um, and the leadership within that, within the division of water resources you know, as you said, we're the driest state in the nation, uh, but we're, and we're also one of the fastest growing states in the nation. Those two facts uh, make it very challenging uh, to, to manage our growth and our water resources at the same time. There are things that we can do in the regulatory realm, but I think there's also, this is a, a topic worthy of the state legislature, looking at our current statutes and making sure that they are up to the task of our modern day water challenges. So you've proposed several bills for the legislative session, or your department has, and can, can you sort of give a summary of what the what those bills are trying to achieve? Sure. Uh, when the average person reads those bills, they're a little bit complicated to understand, but I'll, I'll give you the, the 10,000 foot version of what they do. One of the goals is to um, explicitly allow the state engineer through the Division of Water Resources to conjunctively manage all of our state waters. And what that means is our both our surface water and our groundwater are managed as a single entity that in more instances than not are connected. So uh, it's recognizing the hydro hydrologic connection between surface water and groundwater, which has has not been the historic way uh, water's been regulated in Nevada. And even Nevada statute has groundwater in one area and surface water in another, but uh, we, need, we need to manage it jointly uh, if we're gonna do it smartly based on the best available science. The other thing that the, the current statute doesn't allow for uh, enough flexibility for the state engineer is to mitigate conflicts and water shortages. The tools that the state engineer has are very draconian in, in, in what is uh, available to curtail water use. And so uh, we're asking for some changes to the statute that will allow for mitigation by bringing various parties together and finding a, a common solution that will stand the test of time and stand the test of the courts. So it, it's similar to a bill that was introduced in the last session, or the mitigation aspect is, interest, is similar to a bill that was introduced in the last session, and it got a lot of pushback from ranchers, from environmental groups and sort of conservation groups. Um, because I think there's some concern that, well, I think there's just concern that, that there are some things that can't be mitigated and that, you know, there are some impacts that can't be, can't be mitigated for, and that, that this could end up leading to a further strain on water resources in the state. I mean, what are you expecting politically for that bill? Do you think it's going to be a tough one in this session or? So Daniel, I, th I think that every water bill in every session is, <laughs> is a tough one. And, and this one will be as well, particularly given 
what played out last session. The bill we used last session was a large bill trying to do a number of things. This one we've narrowed uh, to be a little bit more specific. And our starting point here, which I think is essential for everyone, is to do education, to help legislators, stakeholders, policymakers understand uh, what the, the problem is, what the solution we're looking for is, and have them understand it so they can weigh in with helpful solutions, help educate their constituents, and then hopefully we get over the hump of the knee-jerk opposition that we've seen to many of our water bills. I think some of the concern or what's always looming, it seems like, in discussions of water in Nevada is the Southern Nevada Water Authority and the, the their proposal to pump groundwater about 250 miles from uh, sort of the Ely area in eastern Nevada to Las Vegas. Some have said that this bill would make it easier for them to do that because of the mitigation that it would allow. I know that there are other examples of where this sort of mitigation could be used. Uh, you know, how, how much of that is a factor? And do you think this bill actually would enable that proposal? I appreciate that question because there's a lot of misinformation on this on this topic. Mitigation is just one element um, that and one hurdle that the pipeline would have to clear before it could be allowed, uh, notwithstanding recent court decisions that have complicated the matter even further. the The mitigation measures that we would use for this for the pipeline or for a conflict somewhere else else in the state are 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 similar in in the sense that it requires, stakeholders to come together, that it requires approval by the state engineer. But it's not just that. Even if the the what they call the 3M plan, the mitigation and management plan for the pipeline were solved and everyone was comfortable with it, there would still be the the big issues of the water availability, the impact on on you know some of the Native American concerns in the area. And then, you know, looming outside of our jurisdiction is the uh, the huge cost to build this, which mm-hmm. the, the water authority will have to figure out. I think we hopped pretty quickly into the weeds there, but you know, I'm I'm just curious in in general. You know, I want to get back to the state engineer because it is a really important position, and I I don't think that I did a great job of explaining what the position actually entails. But the state engineer is the state's top water regulator, responsible for approving uh, new claims on water rights. Um, but probably more often sort of settling disputes between different water users, whether they be miners or ranchers or cities, municipal users. And so you guys last week appointed an interim state engineer. I'm curious, are, does that mean that you guys are still sort of conducting a search for a state engineer or what's what sort of the status of that position right now? So right now our focus with the state engineer position and the and the division of water resources is uh, to focus on our policy issues and get through this legislative session. Once we achieve that, then we'll turn back to what we're going to do permanently uh, with for the for the state engineer position itself. So there have been rumors floating around that there could be legislation to change the requirements for appointing a state engineer. Right now, the statute requires the position to be filled by someone who's a professional engineer. I've heard arguments that the job is really more about hydrology and the law. And so it would be proponents of doing that argue that it would be beneficial for to, to sort of broaden the kind of applicant pool or the, the amount of people who can do the job. I think opponents worry that, you know, if you have a lawyer in that position, it could make an already political job even more <laughs> politicized. 
you know, I'm curious, has this something that DCNR has looked into at all or the new administration has, has looked into? It's certainly a good question and one that's been looked at uh, informally uh, for a long time now. Um, and, and we've looked at it as well. Um, we don't have any formal pr- proposals at this time, but I will tell you that I sometimes joke that the Division of Water Resources should be renamed the Division of Water Litigation because that is the majority of time uh, that the division spends is on adjudications and litigation. Um, yet the vast majority of the employees within the division are engineers. Um, I'm not advoc- I'm not saying that the engineer should state engineer should be a lawyer, but the the scope of what the state engineer has to cover is often outside the scope of what an engineer's background usually entails. Additionally, and perhaps in the more near term, an opportunity is uh, expanding from just the engineer to to broader technical uh, experience uh, as qualifications for that job. And you mentioned hydrology as being a big issue. Nevada's water issues are much more tied to hydrologic questions than they are to engineering conundrums. And so if we're going to focus or if we want to keep the office very technical and focused on resources, a hydrologist or someone with hydrology in their background could tackle those big issues perhaps better than an engineer. Would that mean having a hydrologist serve in that position instead of an engineer or an engineer who had more of a hydro background? I think having that flexibility generally would would allow us to get the best candidate for Nevada. Gotcha. So, you know, you mentioned litigation, which is an extremely important point. And the SNWA pipeline kind of eclipses a lot of other water issues in the state, I think, a lot of the time. But there are huge issues from Pahrump to Diamond Valley to the Humboldt River that your office is involved in. And I think all, all of those have been the subject of litigation. Yes, they have. Uh, and many more. I've joked with some people that when the state engineer like leaves his house in the morning, he uh, arrives to work <laughs> to see another lawsuit. It's like one step in any direction. And so what you've had is a lot of courts making sort of these big decisions, coming down with these orders that have implications for Nevada water law. You know, what do you make of that sort of the activity of the judicial branch in some of the in sort of shaping Nevada water law because so much of these decisions are litigated and there and there is so much sort of gray area in the law? The problem is that we're getting to a point now where the courts and the judicial branch in Nevada are starting to make and set water policy through the vector of litigation rather than that having been done through the state engineer's office or through the legislature. Um, And I think it's a wake-up call to all of us that we need to really look at our our statutes and have the legislature uh, make appropriate adjustments uh, so that we don't end up with every decision in the court. And I think it's incumbent upon the state engineer's office to do its work, its regulatory work, its adjudication work, um, uh, its, its engineering reviews in the most transparent and inclusive way possible. And then I think you'll see some of these decisions that get litigated constantly either not get litigated or when they go through the courts won't create more confusion. Right now, through all these court decisions, we are uh, on the cusp of a very patchwork Uh, set of water policies across the state that give some users more priority in one area of the state than others. For instance, in Pahrump, the district court basically has made the well users um, have the most super priority. Well, is that the case for well users across the state? And should it be that way at all? So I think the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on on a lot of these active uh, litigation and policy cases. Mm -hmm. 
I want to turn to another topic, which is um, some of the public land issues that your um, office is involved in. And to give listeners a little bit of background, Nevada is about 85% federal public land, which means the federal government manages about 85% of the land in the state. So it's a good chance outside of Las Vegas and Reno that you are in (laughs) federal land. Um, One of the biggest issues across the West on federal land policy has been sage grouse, which is an imperiled bird that has been sort of teetering on the endangered species list for many years now, at least probably about a decade. In 2015, the Obama administration entered into sort of a bipartisan agreement with Western governors that allowed the states to pursue conservation plans, pretty robust conservation plans in exchange for not listing the bird under the Endangered Species Act. And an Endangered Species Act listing would really sort of halt development of many different kinds, whether it's ranching or mining in rural communities across the West. Um, It would have significant economic consequences. That's a lot of setup for, for what is basic, basically boils down to this. The, the state is sort of actively involved in conserving what could be an endangered species. And it's sort of come to, I don't know, symbolize like the tension between developers and conservation and some of the, the fights that are playing out on public land. So curious if you could just sort of give us an update of where those two, 2015 plans are now and what the state's involvement is. So protecting the sage grass in Nevada is a very contentious and also complicated issue, as, as your lead-up uh, articulated. <laughs> but it's in, in Nevada, the, the well, let me say that the way you protect the sage grass is by protecting its habitat, which is the sagebrush habitat. And the sagebrush habitat covers the majority of our state as well. However, given your point about Nevada being 85% plus federal land, uh, we can't manage the sage grouse and protection of, ha- of the habitat without the cooperation of the federal agencies. And primarily that's the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service. So uh, whatever plan is come up with, um, our current plan or whatever changes, changes are made, um, have to have the cooperation and good working engagement with those federal, federal agencies. Otherwise, they're just not going to work. Um, Nevada has taken a leadership role in bringing all those stakeholders that are often at odds together to uh, develop a plan to protect the um, habitat while not um, undermining development uh, rights. And then we do that primarily through um, a a credit system that relies on mitigation. Um, One of the big differences between the 2015 Obama plan and the current revisions proposed by the Trump administration's um, BLM and Department of Interior is that it would would do away with um, compensatory mitigation. And without mitigation in a place like Nevada, we can't make any progress on preserving our sage-grouse habitat. And, and compensatory mitigation basically means that if a developer wants to build something in sage-grouse habitat, they would have to pay to offset those impacts and restore sage-grouse or sagebrush habitat elsewhere in the state. That's right. And that's where you are able to bring, uh, for instance, the mining community or, or mining companies um, in cooperation with the ranching community, where the mining company may want to expand a mine, they can work with a rancher who will protect some of his land that is good sage-grouse habitat to off- offset those um, activities um, in a way that is uh, sustainable statewide. So the Trump administration has removed rules on this really wonky term that we keep using, compensatory mitigation. 
But at the end of the Sandoval administration, the governor was able to get some assurance from the Trump administration that they would allow the state to continue requiring compensatory mitigation, even on federal land, despite the fact that the Trump administration no longer requires it. Are you confident that that agreement is going to continue under this new uh, governor's administration and under the Trump administration? There's going to be a new secretary of interior, for example. Right. Am I, am I confident? No. Am I cautiously optimistic? Yes. I, it's all going to come down to making sure that BLM uh, and the Forest Service uphold their end of the bargain. There was a very in the Trump administration's plan. There was a very small uh, asterisk that said, in removing compensatory mitigation, there was a small asterisk that said you could keep it if you, if the state um, if state law or policy uh, said it was required. Um, so the Sandoval Governor Sandoval issued an executive order saying that it is the policy of the state to do compensatory mitigation and our Sage ecosystem program within the department is working on regulations to codify that executive order. And uh, once that is done, as long as the BLM and the Forest Service continue to tell folks making that apply to have a disturbance on public land to use compensatory mitigation, we'll be okay. If they don't, we're in trouble. And the bird, er, the bird, <laughs> sage-grouse is going to be considered again in 2020 for by the federal government as to whether or not it should be listed under the Endangered Species Act, right? So there's still some sort of threat that it could be listed. Right. And that's the driving force, although there's been efforts in Congress to um, prohibit that review in 2020 of whether the, the, the species should be listed. Um, Sandoval has made this sort of, had made this sort of a priority. Uh, he'd written sort of numerous letters and policy responses to the Trump administration about how he felt about some of the changes they made to the 2015 Obama plans. Um, do you expect to see that sort of continued involvement under a CISLAC administration? I hope so, because there, there's such a clear nexus to uh, protecting our natural resources and supporting our economy in the state. You know, how we deal with sage grouse is going to be integral to that. Um, and so, you know, there are elements of the of the Trump plan, of the Trump revisions that we liked and others that we didn't like. Obviously, the mitigation issue we did not like, but um, the ability to update our maps um, more quickly to reflect the best available science uh, was a good change. And as we move forward, we really need to start taking into account wildfire um, and its impact on, on the sage grouse. We had one of the largest fires, we had the largest fire in the country last year, the Martin fire that no one really heard about because it didn't burn down a lot of houses, but it did scorch hundreds of thousands of acres of sage grouse yeah. habitat. Yeah, I think it was about 600,000, the whole burn. Well, I want to ask about wildfire because wildfire, you know, across the West, the sage grouse is threatened by oil and gas development and by different types of development. But in Nevada, there really is not that much oil and gas. And so the land disturbance from development is sort of different in Nevada and not as dispersed as, you know, oil and gas is. Instead, the people say the biggest threat to sage grouse in Nevada are wildfires. And as you mentioned, there are two big wildfires this year, the Martin fire and the I think it was the Sugarloaf fire that burned more than a million acres of land, a lot of it sage, sage grouse habitat. You know, what, what is the state sort of doing about to manage wildfire, both before it happens and when it happens? And I guess, what are some of the challenges around it? So, so just like with managing uh, sage grouse in the sagebrush habitat, 
wildfire in Nevada can't be managed uh, without the active cooperation and participation of the federal agencies. We're just too big of a state to have our division of forestry or our local county or city responders do it all. The BLM and the Forest Service, again, are a huge part of this. The, the money and the resources they bring are indispensable. We also need to, we, we don't currently fund our division of forestry in a way that reflects our wildfire realities. It is basically funded through uh, $5 million every two years, which is laughable in the context of what it takes to fight fires and certainly laughable for what it takes to fight fires and do upfront mitigation so we don't have another fire um, and uh, restoration afterwards so that we don't have cheatgrass and invasives uh, filling that void. We have native species filling that void. So Nevada will always rely on its federal partners, but we can and should be doing more uh, within the scope of our state authorities. And the, the the division, sorry, of forestry ends up getting a lot of money from IFC, right? Well, th- there's this strange dynamic that I came into was in existence before I came into this job two years ago, where there was some tacit agreement to underfund the forestry department division, but that when we had high activity fire years, that they would come back to the IFC and get supplemental appropriations. It's not a great way of doing business, especially when it's a given that you're going to have to come back and ask ask for more money because the funding initial funding level has been so low. Um, Fire season is almost a misnomer at this point. Fire can happen all year round. In a drought year, we've had fires in December and January. Um, So we need to treat fire as the threat, the modern day threat that it is. And $5 million a biennium isn't a reflection of that uh, current threat. So you mentioned invasive species, cheatgrass and stuff like that, which is getting really into the weeds, literally. Um, But uh, sorry, I can't resist a, a bad pun. But uh, cheatgrass really is a big issue because because it can sort of take over an entire sort of basin and it's more flammable than sagebrush habitat. So it only makes the fire cycle worse and it grows really well in burned areas. So you see a lot of cheatgrass come in after a burn and then it is flammable. So it makes a burn worse and then more cheatgrass comes in and it's just sort of a never ending cycle. So there have been efforts to sort of reseed immediately after a fire, but there have been, you know, big challenges with that as well, because there so much land in Nevada is burning that there's actually not enough seed to reseed right after fire season. Uh, there's resource issues. And then right now with the federal shutdown, there have been issues with reseeding on federal land in the, in the winter, which is the time you would want to reseed because there's the most moisture. So, you know, how is the state kind of tackling these issues? Is it hopeless or are we going to be able to sort of restore some of the ecosystems out there after a fire? It, it's, it's not hopeless, but uh, it is a large challenge. And whether we can wrap our arms around the entire challenge um, will be is, is doubtful. But can we do significantly better than we are now? Absolutely. You know, there's the challenge of having enough seed, having enough uh, people to go out and, and help plant that seed. Um, we don't have that currently with the federal shutdown. Um, we don't have those those resources uh, to help us. 
but it's also about science because you're, the, the way you do forest restoration and uh, wildfire uh, restoration, if you just go drop seed on the ground and pray, you, you don't get a whole lot of return on your investment. And we need to look at new methods for how we do reseeding um, and restoration so that it sticks and doesn't get overtaken by um, cheatgrass or other, other factors. The other impact that the federal shutdown is having right now is also impairing our abilities to do prescribed fire. Um, and we have lots of, of piles that need to be um, burned from prior seasons, that this is the time to do it during this time of year. And if we don't do it now, uh, we're just gonna exacerbate our fire threats uh, in the upcoming summer and into the next year. So it's, it's not something that's been discussed that much uh, recently, but I know you know there's, there is a definitely a connection between climate change and wildfire activity and the increase in wildfire activity that we're seeing a lot of researchers say. And same with the last issue we talked about a while back, the, sort of the water cycle and changes there. How much do you think that should be incorporated into some of the policy decisions that DCNR is making or uh, the federal government for that matter? I think they're, they're all incredibly relevant and they need to be factored in um, holistically. Um, so that they fit within the jurisdiction of the federals, the federal entities and the state. But we can, you know, we, we can do so much more. Climate change is the reason why fire season is not a season. It's an annual occurrence at this point. And it's also fires don't stop at, at state boundaries. You know, we have we share a border with California that's high alpine timber environment. And we could have something devastating happen here um, closer to the Nevada line if we don't manage our forests well. Um, but we can't do that without the, the, the federal government's help. Um, so we, we, we ha- our destiny is in our hands uh, only to a certain extent. Do you think, you know, there's a threat for to see sort of a big fire around Tahoe, the Tahoe Basin? Do you think we're sort of doing enough there in terms of forest management? That, that threat always exists, especially through... Um, man-made causes, which is uh, sadly the majority of wildfire mm-hmm. is through through non-natural causes, um, be them intentional or accident. Yeah, you could always see a fire like that in Tahoe. We've had them before. Um, we are doing a better job of forest management within the basin, but we there is much more that could be done. Um, there are um, piles that need to be burned up there now. We're also doing a much better job now of monitoring fires. There's a, a, a camera network in place that helps uh, monitor fires. You can get there quickly. In an alpine environment, it's hard to get a truck to a fire quickly, but if you can see it on a camera and get a helicopter there, you have a chance of, of stopping it before it gets uh, large and impacts urban areas. We talked about it a little bit with um, the reseeding and with some of the efforts around prescribed burns. But are there any other ways that the federal shutdown is affecting your department? They're, they're starting to pile up um, within our, our state parks realm, for instance, with the national parks being either closed or not. Someplace visitors want to go right now if restrooms aren't, aren't open and trash isn't being picked up. That sends them to our um, state parks. And the majority of those state are, are our southern state parks like Valley of Fire, um, and, and those in Lincoln County. And so we have to send more resources and personnel down there. We end up having more issues. Um, so it does put a strain on, on the state. If federal funding uh, starts to diminish because of this shutdown, we use federal funding to, to help support almost every part of our department, um, particularly our Division of Environmental Protection. And if EPA money st- stops coming to the state, then we have to stop doing the things what we're required to do to make sure air, land, and water stay clean and safe. So uh, each day this drags on, those um, impacts mount. 
you know, one of the big things that, again, like climate and it's tied to climate, uh, just sort of affects everyone when it happens is a drought. And this has been a pretty knock on wood so far, a decent water year. Um, in terms of snowpack, but you know, we've seen some pretty bad droughts in the last decade, you know, even droughts outside of Nevada, like in the Colorado river basin have a big effect on the state. So, you know, I just generally do think that Nevada is prepared for the next drought. We, we are prepared to a, a significant degree, but we can and should prepare more. The 2015 governor's drought forum really helped set the stage for some of our drought planning efforts. But I think we need to do more. We need to keep up with our changing climate um, and looking at those realities and the impacts they have. Um, even in a very wet year, it doesn't necessarily translate into having good supplies and storage of water as our as our snow line generally gradually um, rises and we don't have we get more precipitation in the form of rain than snow or snow that sticks around for uh, a significant period of time. Um, we can't balance our water needs um, through that annual melt cycle and our reservoir storage. So uh, the time to plan for drought is usually during the wet years, but even the wet years um, can have can lead to a drought um, related impacts, depending on the kind of precipitation we get. We need more resources in in Nevada put towards water planning and drought planning so that we can come up with a plan that reflects all of our realities across Nevada, the Northern Nevada, which is heavily dependent on the Sierra. Um, and then in the Colorado River Basin, as you mentioned, Las Vegas gets its water from the, from the Colorado and that comes out, out of the Rockies. So when they have a drought, there's a drought that, that translates into drought in Las Vegas. Both of those pressures are, are significantly impact our water supply in Nevada. So all, a lot of this stuff that we've talked about is extremely complicated and I applaud any person who's still listening uh, <laughs> after all the sage grass discussion and stuff. But every year with a new legislative session, freshmen, legislators, and you have a new governor this year. Uh, how do you sort of go about explaining these really complicated, pro very process-oriented, like multi-agency issues? Education, education, education. It's a constant process, especially uh, with our legislature that meets every other year and the members are part-time and we have term limits, so they, they're, the, the members are changing all the time. It's a constant effort to educate policymakers. And with these complex issues, um, the only way to do it is to have a, a robust two-way conversation. I encourage them to come to us with their questions before they uh, introduce bills in the legislature or hold hearings. And uh, my department is proactive in reaching out to them to explain the issues that are statewide or in their particular assembly or Senate district. And and that's where our focus is. And I think our outcomes will be, will be good if we can um, be well-educated and speak in the same language. You know, most Nevadans live in like Las Vegas or Reno, probably don't encounter very many sage grouse. Um, but is there anything that people can do on sort of a personal level um, that would kind of alleviate some of the burdens on your department in tackling in tackling some of these issues. Well, on the waterfront, the untold story is the uh, successful and aggressive things we've done to to, do, to conserve water. Um, mm -hmm. Las Vegas has done a great job of that. We we do it across the state, and we need to continue to do it across the state. Um, I would say, particularly um, in our ag sector, we could do a much better job of making sure our our ranchers and farmers have 
modern water technologies um, so that they can use their water in the most um, beneficial way without any waste. You know, our, our water law also, sticking with water for a second, is, is designed um, in a, under a theory of use it or lose it. And use it or lose it theory doesn't necessarily promote conservation. It says, I got to use all this water some way to retain my water right. I better do it. I would love to see the legislature give us some more, give some more incentives to water right holders um, to use their water smartly rather than just use it for the sake of having to not to, so as not to lose it. So, you know, water is the, is a big thing. And what, what, what other topics in that realm? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how involved you guys are, but uh, Michelle, my colleague, actually asked me, you know, how involved are they in recycling? Um, like, do you, do you guys do stuff around so, recycling? And So we do. That We have a recycling yeah. program, and um, it's not well known. We had, there's actually statewide recycling goals yeah. um, that are managed through the Division of, of Environmental Protection, but we don't get many resources to promote those programs and and create new technologies that recycle smartly. So we could we could do much we could do much better in the recycling realm for sure. Yeah. Both at the commercial and the uh, sorry, at the residential and the commercial scale. Cool. Well, uh, that's pretty much it from my end. Is there anything that you want to add or think that people should know sort of about DCNR? Well, the the one other thing I'll mention is quickly is that we also have much responsibility for protecting Lake Tahoe, which we focus on with our California partners. Right. Um, I will make a disclaimer that we do, the department does not have the Colorado River under its jurisdiction. And while I'm happy about that, it doesn't mean we uh, avoid the conflicts and the water, the stress on water um, in Southern Nevada. And that we're, DCNR helps protect all of Nevada for all Nevadans. We love when we see the folks from Clark County come up to Elko County to recreate. Uh, the folks from Washoe um, going down to, to Nye and Lincoln and Clark County to see the amazing geography that the geology and geography that they have down there. and you know, one macro thing that the department is trying to do across all of his divisions is showcase the amazing uh, recreational opportunities we have across the state while protecting our natural resources at the same time. I think there's much to be to be done to support our economy if we can have a uh, healthy, smart recreation industry in Nevada. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Daniel.